so we are continuing our series in Jonah. I'm going to do a little backup recording. We've had some... All right. Backup recording for the podcast. Quick show of hands. This is safe space. Be honest. Have you listened to the Resurrection Podcast before? Raise your hand. Okay, cool. That's about eight more than I thought would raise their hands. Um, I'm going to do a backup recording just so we capture that audio. Um, all right, so we are continuing a series uh, in Jonah this morning. And um, even you know, if you've never set foot in a church before, it's likely that you've heard something about um, the book of Jonah. Jonah was the guy that was swallowed by a big fish. We actually talked about that passage two weeks ago. Yes, that really happened. Um, whether people believe the Bible or not, um, across the board, the book of Jonah is considered a literary masterpiece. It is just beautifully written in, in its form and detail and, and wording and everything to a degree to which we, we can't get into those details in our time together on Sunday mornings. But it's a fascinating book. But the reality of what we see in Jonah is God's compassion to surprising people in surprising ways. God's compassion is all over this book, and that's one of the main themes. And we're looking at Jonah chapter 3 this morning. You can turn there if you have a Bible. If not, that text is printed in your bulletin for you. Um, as you're turning there, um, how do you feel when bad people um, don't have to um, receive the punishment that they deserve for their bad things? When someone does something bad and they don't have to serve their punishment for it, how does that make you feel? Uh, you might be familiar with the YouTube, YouTuber uh, Mark Rober. Uh, Mark Rober's pretty awesome. He's a former NASA and Apple engineer. Um, it, that my family and I have watched a number of his YouTube videos. Parents, that, that's on you to vet that first for your kids. If you want to watch it, I think it's awesome. Um, but one of the things that he's become famous for are his uh, glitter bombs. Uh, so basically, he got really frustrated with people stealing um, Amazon packages off his front porch. This has like increasingly become a thing. Where maybe that's happened to you, where a package walks off your front porch, and he would have his little ring camera, and it would it would he would catch these people doing it, and he would try to report it to the authorities, and they're like, you know, there's just not a lot that we can do, unfortunately. It just became more and more common, and even on his videos, you'll see these montages of people just stealing packages off the front porch, and you watch it, and you're just like, oh, like that was like some kid's Xbox that you're walk, walking away with, you know. And it's so frustrating because, like, they're not going to have to deal with the punishment for that. They just get the Xbox. And he got so frustrated that he used his brilliant, and I mean brilliant, engineering mind to craft, like, these um, decoy packages that are actually glitter bombs that look like a package on the front porch. And so he built these things. They have, like, cameras all the way around and audio recorders, and like vo there's like recorded messages, and even some spray that smells really bad that sprays when they open the packages. But So these people would steal the packages, take it back to their house, open the package, and you're watching this footage on his videos, and they open the package, and suddenly there's like sirens going off, there's a glitter bomb that explodes all over these people, so they're covered in glitter, the spray sprays them, and you just watch video after video of these people just totally getting busted. And, I, and there have been multiple times where I'm sitting there watching this with my daughters, and we're like, yes! Like, yeah! And trying to, like, capitalize on the moment, I, I just nudged my daughters, and I was like, that is justice! That's justice! And it just, it's like, it feels so right to see bad people get what they deserve. And just think about the moment that we live in right now. 
Um, we are really passionate about making sure bad people get what they deserve in our cultural moment, right? Cancel, cancel culture is everywhere where high-profile people, you know, it can be one mistake and then you're done. And sometimes that's merited. That needs to happen. There certainly, you know, there is, there's a right sense about that. And maybe some, there are other times where that goes too far. That's another conversation. But we're in a cultural moment where, like, where we will cancel people who do bad things. In our passage, Jonah was a good person, religious person. He was a prophet raised with the sons of the prophets. He was brought up in this. And the Ninevites were bad people who deserved to have bad things done to them. That sets up our passage. In the back of your mind, as I read this and throughout our time looking at this passage this morning, I want you to think about this. If you consider yourself a good person, how do you feel when bad people don't get what they deserve? This is Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from those and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be with us now as we consider it. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two headings this morning as we think about this passage. I want to look at the one, the shortest sermon ever, and then two, the response to the shortest sermon ever. I probably will not be preaching the shortest sermon ever, but that is the title of my first point, the shortest sermon ever. Okay, so the way this passage starts, it should sound familiar if you've read Jonah previously or if you were here earlier in the summer where we looked at the beginning of the passage. Verse 1 God calls Jonah to go to the Ninevites again. Um, The first time he told Jonah to go, Jonah ran. He got on the ship with the sailors, those pagan sailors. God sent the storm. Jonah goes overboard. The pagan sailors were converted. That's a theme in Jonah. Jonah gets swallowed by the big fish. From within the belly of the fish, he cries out to God. He repents in some form to God. God has him spit out back on the dry land. And that's where we find ourselves. It's back on mission for Jonah. 
God calls him again. Which, by the way, as an aside, right off the bat, this tells us something about God. Um, that he's committed to having his message proclaimed. God is committed to having his message proclaimed. Even if it means a detour into the ocean, belly of a fish, his word will be proclaimed. Um, he's going to make sure of it no matter how disobedient or how messy his people get. God will make sure his message is proclaimed. And it also, also shows us that God is a gracious God. That he would still continue to use someone like Jonah, who is like literally ran away from him. He'll continue to use someone like that to bring his message. That he gives God, God gives Jonah a second chance to listen and obey. And what happens? Verse 3, look at the passage. Jonah obeys. He responds the way he should. And then he proceeds to, to preach what is probably the shortest sermon ever. Verse 4. And he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, we don't know that if more was said around this message or not, but this is what's recorded. This is what has been given to us. So let's ask a few questions about that. Um, first, let's remind ourselves, to whom was Jonah preaching? He was preaching to the Ninevites. Um, and the Ninevites were just objectively really bad. Um, it was the military headquarters of Assyria. Um, they were notorious for their brutal torture of their captives. Um, one commentator compares Nineveh to like a modern-day terrorist cell. So like no matter like which way you're looking at it, the Ninevites would have just been evil. Just clearly considered evil. Unjust, oppressive, violent, murderers. The definition of bad people. And for Jonah, uh, these bad people of Nineveh would have absolutely been the other. Um, if you think in terms of like us and them, um, Jonah and his Israelite people would have been the us. And the evil, murderous Ninevites would have been to them. Um, and a bit of a spoiler alert where we're going next week in chapter 4, but Jonah actually doesn't really want them to repent. And we're going to see that clearly in chapter 4. Um, the Ninevites are so other to him, so not his people, um, that he wants them to pay for their sin and not be spared. They, they should get what they deserve. No compassion for them. They are too other. Um, and it's a heavy thing to think about, uh, reviling someone or some group of people so much so that you don't want God to have compassion on them, where you would rather see them destroyed than rescued. That's where Jonah was with the Ninevites. And one of the things we've said about the power of the book of Jonah is that it sort of puts these big questions into the lap of the reader to say, all right, what about you? What about you? So what about us? Um, what person or group of people do you revile so much that you don't want to see God have compassion on them? And maybe that hits you and you're like, no, no, everyone, I want God to have compassion on everyone, I love everyone. Dig a few more layers. Uh, who is other to you? Who is the them, the that group of people that just kind of makes you cringe? And you could chase down a few different categories with that, right? Especially in our incredibly heightened polarization of the last few years. Maybe it's political for you, where you just seethe at the thought of the other side, of those people. Uh, how could anyone hold those political views or um, vote for that person or have that political philosophy? Where like you start thinking about them and your blood just starts boiling. 
uh, that kind of attitude, that, that's also that's the heart behind racism. Right? Where um, we despise an entire group of people based on skin color. Uh, thinking of another race as less than and is not worthy of God's compassion being just totally other. Maybe it's not political or racial. Maybe it's a socioeconomic class where could be those with less than you, could be those with more than you, but whatever it is, it's not you. And so they are other. And so you just, uh, you just seethe and sort of despise them. A uh, small example of this from my own life. Seventh grade year for me was the year of rollerblading. Yes, roller, I've seen a few people on rollerblades on Swamp Rabbit Trail, so it might be making a comeback. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be donning the skates anytime soon, but um, I was obsessed in seventh grade, aggressive inline skating, and, and like we had our crew, the rollerblading crew, and we spent all of our free time rollerblading, and the big thing for us is we did not like the skateboarders. They were other. There was this like really weird, intense feud between the rollerbladers and the skateboarders, as far as we were concerned, they had nothing good to offer. This is what sin does to us as people. Sin is that thing in all of our hearts that sort of tees us up to be ready to find the other and to despise the other, no matter what age of life we are, no matter what stage of life we're in. And that is true, especially when we are finding our identity in something other than God. If my primary identity is as a rollerblader and not as a child of God, then anything that opposes my identity of being a rollerblader, I'm not going to like them. They're going to be other to me. That's what Jonah was doing with the Ninevites. What did God think of the Ninevites? I mean, clearly he's telling Jonah to call out against their evil. He didn't like the evil. You may have noticed uh, the language of the text Uh, Look at the passage in verse 3. God considers uh, Nineveh a a great city. You could translate that a few different ways. A great city to God. Or an important city. So much so that God wants to have compassion on this people. We're going to see more of that in chapter 4. He loves them enough to confront them so that they can hear the truth about their evil ways. And so what's what's the sermon? What does Jonah say to them? Let's talk about the content of this short sermon. You see it all in verse 4. It's not very long. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Close the Bibles and go home. There's a timeline, 40 days. There's a threat of being overthrown. Um, What is not mentioned in this sermon? Uh, The team that does the Bible Project, you may be familiar with the Bible Project. They do a really cool like 10-minute overview of the book of Jonah, which I recommend to you. They point out a few things that are not mentioned in Jonah's sermon. First, the sin of the Ninevites, like what they were actually doing wrong. Jonah doesn't say that in his words to them. Um, Secondly, how they should respond. What what would be the ideal turnaround for them? And the third thing is God himself is not mentioned in those few verses, in that that one sentence. This is all we get. Forty days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. What kind of message is he preaching to the Ninevites? He is preaching a message of God's coming wrath and judgment to them. Again, we don't know if he said more than that, but he at least said that, that God would overthrow the city due to their sin. And as like enlightened modern readers, it can be really tempting to take a verse like that and just think, you know, that's why I don't like the God of the Old Testament. 
because he's all about wrath and judgment and punishment. I'm a fan of the God of the New Testament uh, because it's more about like love and forgiveness and things like that. You know, and the assumption behind that is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods, which is not the case. But sometimes that's how we think about the Bible. Um, or maybe we read this and think, you know what? Okay, yeah, that's fine. But for me, uh, God is love. And he doesn't do stuff like that. And so I can't accept this idea of like divine judgment. And if that's where you're at, you are right that God is love. First John chapter 4 says it twice, that God is love. But for God to be truly loving, he must deal with evil. Uh, good parents confront the disobedience in their children because they love them. Um, it, would not let, it would not be loving to let evil go unpunished, um, to let injustice run wild, to let sin just go undealt with. Um, a loving and holy and just God must deal with whatever is unholy and unloving and unjust. And Jesus himself in the New Testament warns of this final judgment when he returns, Matthew 25, that the sheep and the goats will be separated one from the other. That the sheep will inherit the kingdom and the goats will be separated. They will go to the eternal fire. Um, God does not change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He, New Testament. he was the same then in, in, in both iterations and he's the same now. Okay, why would Jesus preach something like that in the New Testament? Because Jesus was perfectly loving. And if you zoom out and think about our passage, can you see the love behind this message to the Ninevites? It's a warning. 40 days and there will be judgment if you don't repent. If you don't repent. But it was always conditional. There was a way out. So the content of the sermon was one of pending doom and judgment on the Ninevites if they didn't repent. What is the response? What is the response to the shortest sermon ever? Um, to just to let you into the, to the inner life of a preacher um, and my own preaching, sometimes I'll you know, stand up here and preach and I'll leave and I'll, I'll you know, feel okay about what I said. Normally I'm pretty self-critical. I think, ah, I probably should have said more about that, less about that. I should have used a different word for that. I should have said this differently. And, um, you know, actually I try to go back. I'm one of the three listeners on the podcast. I should have raised my hands. And, and just self-critique and just think about, okay, here I, I could have said that. And, you know, sometimes I'll think, man, that was just like a total flop. Uh, or I'll thought that, think that's a really great sermon. That's few and far between. But regardless, my own read on a message or a sermon is often very different than how God uses it in the lives of his people. What about with this sermon from Jonah? How did God use it? What was the response to this? There, there were responses from the Ninevites and also from God. First, the Ninevites repent. Look at verse 5. It almost seems so simple. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And it goes on, verses 6 through 8, it talks about the king of Nineveh, which likely would have been some sort of governor position. He covers himself with sackcloth and ashes. This is a common cultural demonstration of mourning in this moment. He issues a decree that not every, just every person, he commands the animals to fast and to repent. He said no, no beast is going to eat during this time, but everyone cry out to God, fast, mourn, and turn from your evil. So it's not just like a few uh, opinion leaders in Nineveh repent. Everyone repents. Everyone turns from their evil to the point where it's even mandated by the authorities. 
What was the thinking of this king, this governor? Verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. He's thinking just maybe this God of the Israelites will show us mercy. On Friday, my family and I went to the Flying Rabbit Ropes course to celebrate the end of summer uh, over here on Lawrence Road. It was really fun. I highly recommend it. Um, as you might imagine, at a ropes course, there are a lot of rules. Safety is a big deal there, as it should be. Um, the primary rule that they gave us time and time again had to do with the gates on the main tower. So in the middle of this ropes course is a big gate that you, you or sorry, a big tower that you walk up the stairs and there's a few different levels and there are multiple ropes courses that you can, you can go on while you're there. And there's gates that start each ropes course. And they said, look, if you only hear one rule today, it's this. Do not open the gate. Don't open the gate. That is the job of the people who work here at the ropes course and that is only their job. And they just kept saying it. And they said, here's why. Because when that gate is closed and your rope isn't connected yet, you could fall off the tower. And that's bad for everyone. So they scared all of us into not opening the gate. And so it was almost like we had an allergy to the gates where we would get to the gate. Can can we do the gate thing now? And you would latch in and then finally they'd open the gate for you and you were allowed to go. It was a really dire warning about the gates. But it was also a loving warning. And heeding that warning uh, made the ropes course a lot more enjoyable than had we not heeded the warning of not opening the gates. Uh, This warning to the Ninevites, it is dire. Your whole city is going to be overthrown. But it's loving. And they all heard it. And they all responded. And it meant that God didn't Wipe them out. Okay, fair question about that. Um, Did the Ninevites really repent? There's a few interesting questions. This is one of them. Did the Ninevites really repent? We asked the same question for Jonah. Some commentators would say, kind of. You know, that they turned from their evil, but they didn't truly repent because they didn't offer sacrifices to God. um, They didn't do the things. They they didn't forsake their idols and Um, and begin a relationship with God like you see a pattern in in other um, Old Testament pagan people repenting. So some would say no, that they didn't really repent. On the other side of that, you have the passage Matthew 12 that we read this morning, where it says that the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. There was some type of repentance that took place by the Ninevites, that's for sure. The degree to which they repented, only God knows the heart. But this is where the book of Jonah gets put back in our lap again. Because we need to read this and and not be so concerned with the nuances of the Ninevites' repentance, but with our own repentance. And we need to see that God's judgment on sin is real. Sometimes we recite the Apostles' Creed during our worship service. and We say that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We kind of just fly through it. Maybe you've memorized it. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. I was with a group of pastors a few weeks ago in in this cohort group, and we had a pastor a few years down the road sort of sharing some things that that he wanted to remind us of as as new church planters and pastors. And one of the things he said was, um, do not forget that hell is real. Don't forget that hell is real. It's not made up. It's a real destination for those who have not repented and trusted in Christ. The question that we need to grapple with is, Have I repented 
and turn from my sin? Um, Do I understand the bad news of my sin and disobedience and rebellion and distance from God? Do I understand that apart from Jesus I'm condemned? And have I really grasped that Jesus is my only hope? My only hope for mercy? It's a real question. It's a loving question to grapple with. The Ninevites responded with repentance and turning from their evil. And what does God do? Verse 10. God relents. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. This warning to the Ninevites was conditional. If they repented, then God would relent of this coming disaster. Okay, so another interesting question. Did God change His mind? Did their response make God change His mind? Did God plan one thing and then do something different based on what they did? The answer is no. But it's complex. God was sovereign over the whole thing. Nothing happened in this scenario that was outside of His control. That's a big part of the theme of Jonah is God's sovereignty. And the Ninevites were completely responsible for how they responded to God. Completely responsible. God ordains and plans not just the ends of things, but also the means. He he ordains the how of how things happen. So in this case, the warning, the Ninevites' repentance, all a part of God's good plan. And the Ninevites were responsible. And that's how the passage ends. Crisis averted for the Ninevites, at least for now. You can go read Nahum uh, at home, and that's another prophecy where it doesn't go so well for the Ninevites. But these really bad people repented. And they didn't have to face the coming disaster that they justly deserved for their evil. And that drives us back to our original question. This tension that we feel to some degree that Jonah felt big time. How do you feel when bad people don't deserve the, the, don't have to pay the punishment they deserve? And let's ask an even bigger question. How is it possible that any bad person can find themselves in a situation where they don't have to pay their punishment that's due to them? Because like the thieves stealing packages off the porch, it's just unjust. It's unfair. It's not what they deserve. How, how is that possible? Think about our New Testament reading again from Matthew 12. Jesus was in a conversation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, about about having a sign of belief. And and he says to them, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, alright, Jonah was in the fish, three days, three nights there. Jesus says that he himself is about to go into the ground three days and three nights. He's predicting his death on the cross and his burial. Why did Jesus have to die? He was perfect. Never sinned. We sang about that beautifully. He never sinned. Thought, word, deed, not at all. He was perfect. He was not a bad person. He was a good person, a perfect person. That's unjust and unfair for the good person, the perfect person, to have to die. Jesus had to die because He came as our substitute. He came to stand in the place of bad people to bear the punishment for their sin. Because sin has to be dealt with. God's judgment doesn't just magically disappear. 
It has to be poured out. And for those who believe, those who have trusted in Christ, all the judgment of God against their sin and disobedience was poured out on the cross on Jesus. Not magically erased, but fully brought to bear on Christ. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, The only good person, Jesus, stood in the place of all bad people and took all of their punishment for them so that they would not have to bear it. Um, He was declared guilty so that bad people could be declared not guilty. And I want you to think about how that changes how we think about who is bad and who is good. Um, Jonah was off in his thinking about the Ninevites as like the really bad other people and himself as the good Israelite person. If Jonah really understood his own sin, he would have known that he is much more like the Ninevites than he realized. Uh, Because the degree to which you understand the depths of your own sin is going to be the the degree to which you are compassionate towards bad people. Um, Understanding your own sin, your own rebellion against God, your own distance from God, the the yuck and the mess in your own heart, uh, the more you understand that, the more it's going to begin to chip away at your self-righteousness and your judgment against other people. And slowly over time, your attitude is going to become like that of the Apostle Paul, and you're going to call yourself the chief of sinners. The author Paul Tripp wrote a book on marriage years ago, and um, I read this when I was engaged. I read a lot of marriage books books when I was engaged, not as many since I've been married, probably should reverse that, but one of the things he said in his marriage book was that eat for the key to a healthy marriage, um, this is free, this is an aside, uh, was for each person in the marriage to be convinced that they themselves are the greatest threat to the marriage failing, not the other person. He said that's the key. He says um, the um, the self-righteous, judgmental heart would look at the other person in the marriage and say, you're the threat to this thing failing. Don't mess it up. But Tripp says the key to a healthy marriage is for you to have that attitude about yourself. I'm the threat to this marriage failing. I'm the one that's going to mess it up. But if both people have that attitude, that's going to create a healthy marriage. What about us as a church? What's the greatest threat to the church? Uh, it is so easy to think, to just like point to the decay of culture. There's just, it is just all the time, everywhere. Schools, popular culture, TV, it's just everywhere, everywhere, all the time. You, it, maybe it's the changing definition of marriage. Uh, the changing definition of sexuality and gender and identity. Um, we could go on and on about just, just, just clear cultural decay that's happening. And it would be easy to answer that question and be like, yeah, the crazy culture is the greatest threat to the church right now. You see what's going on out there? That is not the greatest threat to the church. The greatest threat to the church is right here. It is our own hearts, our own sin. It is us in this room uh, that we bring our sinful fallen lives clashing into community with one another. Um, The healthiest attitude that we could have as we come into community with each other is that I, for each of us to say, I am the greatest threat to this body. I could send this thing crashing down. We trust that God's bigger than any one of us, but, but that's the attitude. 
It's my sin. It's my brokenness. It's not others in this room and it's not the decay of culture out there. I'm the greatest threat to this thing. Are your eyes more locked into the sins of others or your own sin? There's two ways to answer that. And answering it one way is going to lead you to believe that your sin really isn't that bad. And therefore you don't have that great of a need of Jesus. But if you answer it the other way, then it will lead you to fall down on your face before the cross and beg for God to have mercy on you. And guess what? God loves to have mercy. He loves to show compassion. He was compassionate. He was compassionate to the Ninevites, and He is to us. And so the invitation this morning is to collapse into His compassion and mercy and find cleansing for your sin in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this is our prayer and this is our cry before You. That we would collapse into Your mercy and into your compassion, that we would, each of us would see ourselves as the greatest threat to the church. That we would have our eyes more locked into our own sin than the sins of others. And Father, for where we have failed to do this, we repent now and we turn from that and we turn to you. Jesus, thank you that you love to forgive. Thank you that you came to rescue us. Thank you that you as the one good and perfect person stood in place of bad people like us to pay for our, for our punishment that we justly deserved. Oh, would you meet us in a special way as we come to your table now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.